Welcome back to the Someone to Tell To podcast today. It's been a few weeks since our last episode was introduced, and in a few moments, we'll tell you why. This new episode was recorded over a week ago, and we've been literally counting the hours until we could release it. There's so much depth in this conversation we had with our guest, Dr. Patrick O'Malley. So much to do that we've even split this into two episodes, which is the first time we've ever done this. We really hope you'll like them both. Before this episode begins, we'd like to introduce the guy who literally makes our podcasts possible. Without his technical wizardry, we could never get them out for you to hear. He's our technical engineer, Clark Stefanik. So in order for you to get to know him a little more, we've invited him to come out from behind the scenes to share an experience that has embedded itself very deeply into his heart and spirit. We had delayed this episode because he was away on a mission trip. And so here's Clark to tell you a little bit about it. Hey everyone, Clark here. I've been working with Michael and Tom for a while now, and we've been making this here podcast and... I think we all have a really good time doing that. I wanted to apologize for the delays in uh, getting this episode out there because, as Tom said, we've been very excited about this one and could wait to put it out. But part of the reason we haven't been able to do that is because I was in Puerto Rico. Um, about halfway through February, um, we took a week and we went with uh, American Baptist Churches of PA and Delaware. I've never been on a mission trip in which I had to get on a plane to get to our destination. But I can tell you I will definitely be doing it again. Um, we got to meet a lot of people who were very grateful for the work that uh, Jesus is doing and for the things that we were able to do through him. We, Even though we didn't really speak Spanish very well, uh, we found ways of communicating, whether it be general hand gestures or Google Translate. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you could just tell that there's a lot that needs to be done. I'm just so happy to have been a part of uh, such a wonderful trip. And I'm even more excited to bring that motivation, that energy, that spirit back with me and uh, apply it to all that I do here at home. So can't wait to get back to podcasting. So I'll throw it back to your hosts and we'll get this show on the road. We also have a few words from someone to tell it to's newest board member, Connor Donnan, about why he supports someone to tell it to and these podcasts. His experiences growing up in Northern Ireland amidst the 30-year civil war that took place there affected him and his family very directly. We appreciate his voice and his understanding of why the work that someone to tell it to is doing is so needed in our world. Hello everyone, my name is Connor Donnan and I am a board member of Someone to Tell It To. I grew up in Belfast during the Troubles, a 30-year conflict that devastated my community. I've spent my entire life working to build a more compassionate and more empathetic world, which is why I joined Someone to Tell It To. I believe Someone to Tell It To has the answer to many of the world's problems concerning loneliness, political polarization, depression, and a lack of communal living. I donate to this podcast because I believe that someone to tell it to needs to get its message out globally, and the podcast is one of the best formats for doing that. If you think that this podcast can help people throughout the world, and you believe in cultivating a more compassionate and empathetic global community, then please consider donating. We have lots of cool gifts for different tiers of donations. Some people donating might get a signed copy of Michael and Tom's book. Others will get tickets to our annual gathering. I know you guys have been so generous already, and I just hope you can keep it up. We've had commitments from $5 a month to $50 a month, and every little helps because we are a nonprofit organization that is trying to change the world. Thank you guys for listening. Bye. Few things could be more important than learning how to live with our sorrow and to support others who are bereaved. One thing is certain. Grief is inevitable and inescapable. If we love, we will also grieve. And it's with those words 
concluding the introduction to Patrick O'Malley's book, Getting Grief Right, Finding Your Story of Love in the Sorrow of Loss, we begin today's interview. Dr. Patrick O'Malley is a psychotherapist in Fort Worth, Texas, who specializes in grief counseling. For 35 years, he has counseled individuals, couples, and families in his private practice. He has also consulted with businesses and medical practices on effective communication strategies in the workplace. His book, which he co-authored with our good friend, Tim Madigan, our very first podcast guest, appeared in the New York Times on January 11th, 2015. He has written several other articles on child and family grief, beginning with his doctoral dissertation on the impact of the death of a child on marriage. Other professional activities include teaching seminars for medical and emergency personnel on grief, as well as training staff and volunteers on grieving children and families. Our interview with Patrick was filled with so much depth, we decided to turn the conversation into two episodes, something we've never done before on the Someone to Tell It To podcast. We hope you will find much meaning, understanding, and substance in these episodes because grief is universal. Welcome, Patrick, to our podcast today. We have really been looking forward to talking with you. And we, to start, we, we want to ask you about um, a mutual friend of ours, a mutual relationship. We got connected with you because of our friendship with the author, Tim Madigan. And we know that you and Tim have been friends for many years. And uh, Tim has been our friend probably for the last seven, seven years. And we, we just enjoy him so much. And, and we know that he enjoys you very much. So it's, it's wonderful to meet one of his friends, one of his great friends, and to be able to, uh, to share in this time with you. We, uh, well, in fact, our very first podcast episode, which was just a little over a year ago, was uh, Tim was our first guest because we felt comfortable with him. <laughs> we felt somebody we, we, we felt safe with. And if we messed up on our, especially our first time, we knew that he, he might give us a hard time a little bit, but we, he would be, he would be gracious to us. And we know we messed up. <laughs> yeah. So um, we now have a year under our belt. And, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, Tom, do you have anything to say about, about our relationship with Tim? Yeah. We actually just talked with Tim a little earlier in the week. And we were just reminiscing as we always do. And we'd love to just laugh a lot. And we were talking about one of the first times we reached out to him, which we talked about in the first episode, is the fact that we had gotten tattoos. I don't know if Tim had told you this tattoos in Fred Rogers handwriting. That's this famous quote, I'm proud of you on my arm. And, um, and, and so we mentioned it in the podcast. And I remember the first time we mentioned it to him, he thought we were a bit strange that we would go to such great lengths to put something on our bodies uh, as a result of his book. But we've not done that with you and your book. Okay. But, well, um, yeah. <laughs> there's probably still room on your arm for that. Yeah, oh, the, well, there's two, two arms, so yeah. there is, yeah. there's plenty of room. Two arms, there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. You could talk a little bit with our listeners about your relationship with Tim and how you guys got connected. Yeah, when Tim has talked so much about you guys, it's great to finally uh, meet you in this way. Um, Tim is, uh, the book would not have happened without Tim, and um, he and I go back many, many years, and as we mentioned in the book, we, we had two important people in our lives who were friends with each other, and that was for Tim, uh, Fred Rogers, as you've mentioned, and for me it was Henry Nowen, and Henry and uh, Fred were great friends, and so I, we, we never can quite remember how we found each other, but that was our first common link. And that, I'm going to guess, was 25 or 30 years ago. And then we would spot check with each other every now and then through the years. And um, we went to lunch one day, and I pitched this book idea uh, to Tim about grief. And at that point, it was I was thinking a whole different format and a whole uh, different kind of title and, and way of doing it. And um, Tim was on board, but we were both just so much in the thick of family life and work that, that after that lunch, it dropped again and we didn't visit about it. A few years later, Tim uh, 
contacted me and said he was writing a novel and he needed the characters to be a little more psychologically disturbed. <laughs> and, uh, Sounds like Tim. He, he, thought, he thought I might be able to pitch in on that. So I said, send me the manual script. I can do that. I can, I can, I've got the information on how to do that. But on, in trade-off, I've got, I've, I'm going to put this book I did in a proposal, and I want you to read it. And so uh, I did my bit, and, and we sat down uh, to talk about at lunch, uh, my idea about the book. And at that point, I was thinking about, uh, at that point when I work with grief, I thought maybe what I'd do is just interview a lot of people about their grief experience and maybe some people sort of in the national scene and talk about this because I was developing more and more ideas that we'll talk about maybe in, in just a minute. And Tim said, you buried the lead, newspaper talk. And I says, what do you mean? He says, at the bottom of this, you mentioned that you're a bereaved parent. That is the story. This is the story. So I, we can do this, but that's the story, not all these other people. Well, he was the expert. He had written books, and I hadn't. It, it uh, startled me a little bit because I hadn't shared that much about my own personal loss of my son. Uh, but that was the beginning of us really starting to get after this and put this together. And so Tim and I worked um, really for a full two years, you know, in, as books go in various phases to get it done. And um, we're just real, real, real pleased with how it came out. And it's just helped us spend so much more time together and certainly solidified our friendship. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for him and the time we still get to spend together. That's wonderful. And before before we talk about the book and and what and what you've written, we also we just need to say that the the other connection that we feel is that both Fred Rogers and Henri Nouwen are are spiritual heroes of ours. We we began our own friendship and relationship and our own work that we do by reading first we read we read Tim's book. That's how we first got to meet him. And, uh, you know, about Fred Rogers, then we read things about Fred Rogers and we've read, you know, many books uh, by Henri Nouwen. And we, we quote both of them all the time uh, that we're, we, when, in our talks, in writing that we do, in blogs. Uh, we, we really appreciate their work. And so we appreciate your appreciation as well of, of what both of those, those stellar stellar human beings as men have um, contributed to our world and to our understanding of well that's even a, even a yeah more connection with you guys and uh it my great gift was uh we had a small group here in town that was arranged by a friend of of henry's and he actually came to town several times came to my oh, house wow. once and we had a, a group wow and so we really had a lovely intimate oh time with him and um it was. It stands out as one of the uh, profound um, spiritual experiences of my life to be in his presence and and to listen wow. to him and talk with him. That's very impressive, and that's wonderful. What an experience! So you had mentioned Patrick a little bit about your story. You had just referenced it earlier on, and I think for our listeners today, it'd be helpful to learn a little bit more of. Of your background and especially as it pertains to to grief and to loss and and for that we're we're sorry we're sorry that's a part of your journey that we're sorry that's a part of the human experience but that's what we're going to talk about today would you begin today just by telling us a little bit about your story i would be glad to do that i graduated uh from graduate school in 1979 uh, so I just have coming up on 41 years of being in this work of psychotherapy. And in, um, so as a baby therapist, I was 26, uh, which just frightens me to think that I was actually practicing at that age. Uh, but I guess I qualified enough to do it. And in 1980, our first son was born um, several months premature. And so he lived the first uh, six months of his life in the neonatal intensive care unit. And so many times we thought we were going to um, lose him in that process. But he ended up breathing on his own and he was starting to kind of develop and, and we were able to bring him home. 
and he was in our home for the next three months and uh, died somewhat of a sudden infant death type death. He was uh, about nine months old when that happened. And we, you know, we thought we were out of the woods, medically speaking. We knew he had a host of issues, and we were all prepared to deal with those and had begun to deal with those. So his death, um, although through all those many months we certainly weren't um, uh, guaranteed that he would live, his death surprised us. I went back to work um, a week, really just a week after he died. Looking back on that, that was terribly quick. And over the next couple of years, began to get so many referrals from folks uh, in my practice because I was the therapist who had gone through loss. And I particularly received a lot of referrals for parents whose children had died. And I was woefully unprepared to do that work. I've talked to many colleagues my age, and, and we all say the same thing, which is we really had almost nothing to prepare us on our most universal experience, which is loss. It was not part of the curriculum. It might have been embedded in maybe a family life stage book at the back, but that was it. So I was in my midst of my own grief, uh, just terrible anguish, and trying to work with folks um, who were coming into my practice. And at that point, I didn't know anything else. There really wasn't much of anything else uh, in terms of models to use. So I used what has been a very popular, famous model through time, which is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages. And I actually would even use it as a diagnostic tool. Folks would come in, and I would sort of assess where they were and try to figure out what step or stage they had completed and maybe where were they stuck. And at least in my thinking, and I think it was um, reasonable thinking given that material, the point was to head towards some conclusion, to head towards as her fifth stage was, uh, or was acceptance. Now, I, I, we talked a little bit in the book about there were other influences going on at that time in the therapy world, particularly Gestalt therapy was a, a very uh, popular form and model. And that's really where, the, where the word, we get the word closure. But those kind of ideas of acceptance and closure somewhat merged together. And during this time, I was in my own therapy. I went to see a Gestalt therapist because I continued to mourn and feel active grief six months, nine months, a year, a year and a half later. I engaged in the empty chair um, therapeutic experience and spoke with my, my son who had died. The Gestalt therapist said, indeed, it appeared to him I had not let go, not reached closure. And uh, so I did that. I kept working at it, but nothing was really satisfying. So that went on for really several years, and I had a lot of self-doubt about me and the work I was doing with these folks who were grieving. And I finally got to a point where I said, "This it is time to retool. This is not working. I've got to come up with something, some other way of connecting with folks. And I tell the story in the book about a, a, a client named Scott. These are all composites to protect uh, privacy, but they are very true stories in what happened. And I was doing my deal with Scott, uh, whose father had died suddenly from a heart attack. And I told Scott, here's how grief works. There's five stages. I thought he'd, he was a construction worker, so I thought he'd kind of get into this like a blueprint. And Scott says, I don't know about that. I don't even want to be here. Um, my pastor and my wife think I'm drinking too much. I said I'd give it a shot. But what you're talking about sounds like hooey to me. And I was thinking to myself, he's right. You know, this doesn't feel relevant. So I just sat back and tried to see what would happen. And Scott started telling story after story after story about he and his dad. And at the end of the session, I'd made a deal with him. If you don't want to come back, don't come back. And I told him time was up. And he said he'd give it another shot. Came back the next, next session. And launched back into story after story. And then he got there. He got to the point where he got in the phone call about his dad's death about showing up in the emergency room and seeing his dad's body in the ER, and he just began to weep and weep and weep. And it was that, plus many, many other stories, where I began to make this transition to understand that Scott didn't need my steps and stages. Scott's telling his story was his therapy. 
And it started to shift me towards the power of really what folks were coming for was two parts to be able to tell that story and for that story to be heard, for that story to be received, for me to bear witness to what they had to say. So I pulled back from what I'd been doing and I started reading different material like attachment theory and, and some other, other theories and realized that how deeply I had sort of accepted the idea that grief was a condition to be cured, that loss was something that we had to work with in order to make better, and how I had medicalized and pathologized grief for myself and for those I worked with. But if we really dig down and say, well, what is this that we, we call grief? It is the response to the breaking of an attachment because of the love we have for the person who has died. And then it shifted for me. Well, if grief is about love, then there's no pathology here. There's nothing diagnosable. This is an organic response to the breaking of an attachment in this lifetime. And I began to see this not in just death loss, but in living loss issues, folks with illness and folks with financial issues and folks going through divorce. And so I, I began to put aside what I'd done for several years and began to um, open up to this idea of the power of the narrative, the power of the story, and what my job really was um, clinically uh, it was to provide for folks who came to me a place for their story to be uh, told and received. And I tell another story um, as kind of a contrasting story, story of Mary. What had began to happen was so interesting in the mid to late 80s is that the Kubler-Ross material had really gotten into popular culture. And, you know, we, we need to remember, many folks know this, some folks it's news to them, that Kubler-Ross's research was not with grieving people. It was with dying people. Her group was our, were oncology patients, terminal oncology patients. And when I think back about those five stages, and I do work with several folks who are, who are actively dying, uh, I do see that. There are, is that. But it, then it got translated into grief. And there's lots of controversy about what she meant and didn't mean. Uh, and let me just pause here and say she deserves all our respect for what she did in terms of bringing death out of the shadows and something to be talked about and dealt with and her contribution to the hospice movement. But it's been confusing for a lot of folks and particularly as this got into popular culture. And so I would get many, many folks who were self-diagnosed. They were coming in and telling me that they hadn't completed their stages and what was wrong with them. So I tell the story of Mary, who was one of those. I call her a high achiever griever. And I've got a lot of those. You know, they're folks who want to get it right. And they're absolutely sure they must not be getting it right because they haven't completed their stages. And Mary was a high, high achiever in everything she did, high powered kind of accountant type, and she'd taken, her baby had died from sudden infant death, and she had taken a few weeks off and back at work and trying to make her team uh, achieve and succeed, uh, but quietly she was suffering. And so she had heard I was a brief parent, and she tried two or three other therapists and fired them, and she came in to see me because she had determined she was stuck in depression, one of the five stages. And so she made it my task to get her out of that. And I said, we'll talk about all of that, but really what I want you to do is tell me the story of your baby. And she was hesitant. She said, I didn't really come here to do that, but I had enough credibility because of my own circumstance. She was willing to do that. And she did. And she walked through every moment of what had happened and finally got to the place where um, you know, she knew that her baby had died and just again began to sob. And she said to me, as people will say to me even this week, what is wrong with me? Why am I feeling this way? And I used to say, well, it may be that, you know, we've got some work to do to get you to closure and get these stages worked through. But then what I began to say is, and they say, how long will this last? My question back would be, how deeply did you love? Because that's how long this will last. And for Mary and just countless others, what you could see was the relief that they weren't getting anything wrong. And what I think a lot of people who come to me have that we call grief shame. They have self-criticism and shame because either what they have read or how folks respond to them about their grief that is basically communicating to them that they may not be getting it right, that they're not doing what they need to do in order to complete their grief. 
So that's the story primarily, and um, all these years later, I continue to see a lot of folks who come in um, for the same reason, who are confused, disoriented, self-critical, and um, there are many, many folks who really are here because they just don't know what to do with all this that's happening, and much of our work is to try and understand the nature of attachment and the nature of loss and the impact that has and, you know, for me to keep a close eye on them in terms of how they're going through this. Um, but I would also say a, a, a lot, a portion of the folks I see really come because they're isolated. They don't have anywhere else to talk about this. And as I like to say, the last casserole dish is picked up and there's really not much uh, room uh, in their world or their community for them to be with, with their feelings. Patrick, you... <laughs> There's so much you have there. you have said so much, and and we we don't even know. It's hard to even know where to start, because what you have shared with us is just filled with such understanding, insight, wisdom, power, and uh, it is actually pretty profound. The things that you've learned, that you've discovered, and that you're trying uh, very eloquently to to share with the rest of the world because uh, we think it, it's so important. So uh, one question I want to ask, first of all, about one of the things that you brought up was about the power of story. Why is, why do you think that story is so powerful? Why in us, in any of us, telling our stories, especially stories of grief and loss, pain, sadness, what, how does, how does that help us? How does it how does it bring healing? How does it bring comfort? Uh, we'd like to hear what uh, what you've learned and your insights. Well, I, I'm at a season in my life where I get to kind of do all this over again. I've got I've got grandkids now, and the youngest is four, and he was uh, born at about the time when I started writing. Tim and I started working on the book, and. Um, and so it's been fascinating to listen with a little more wisdom and from the role I'm in as, as grandparent, not as parent, to his innate desire to tell stories. And remembering that that was true with other, other children. And, you know, it's, and sometimes, you know, the syntax is off. It doesn't even make sense. You know, it's getting better as he's getting older and more articulate. But you can see that brain working because it's coalescing information. And you know, we think about the kind of the neuroscience of it. What we're doing is trying to take the parts and make them into a whole. We're trying to code what has happened to us so we can move it into memory and pull it out when, when we need to retell it. I think that is true with the lost stories. I think what so deeply happens is it helps connect us to those we have lost. It helps us try and organize what's happened. It is a, a way we connect to tell these stories. Um, it's profoundly important. And my guess is we probably, for millennial, uh, told these stories. And then we got to uh, the, the changes in culture. Tim and I talk about this you know, in the book that we, when we moved into industrialization and sort of lost the community of acknowledging those who mourn, and the time and the place to tell stories. Something probably profound happened to us as a community and a society because there was no time and no room for it. And then we move into the decades where, again, it was looked at as on a time scale. And many of the sort of cultural rituals were lost, which are really ways of telling stories. And it, we've just, it's gotten thinner and thinner over time. And I would state from where uh, the work I do and what I see is that it's impacted our, our collective mental health. I guess that'd be the best way to say it. In that we are so, so many folks I see are, again, let me say it this way. A lot of the folks I see are here because their community is not working. Their community is not doing what their community ought to do. And so they seek out someone who can have the kind of reception to the conversation that they need. And um, and let me also be clear, there's some folks who come because they've got trauma loss. We can talk about that as well. And they really do need the guidance of somebody who understands how trauma works. 
because when you have trauma and loss, you have two things going on. You obviously have the profound loss that's occurred, but you also have all of this chemistry that's going on in the brain with trauma and post acute trauma and post traumatic uh, stress disorder uh, and trauma. But back to, to where I was, I think that you know it is just how we're wired. We're wired to tell our stories and. Good listening, which is your mission, and I'm so grateful for the work you, you all are doing, is about how to receive that, about how to bear witness. And, you know, we now know, um, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I've been practiced a long time. You know, my field, we always hoped what we did was useful, but now we've got more neuroscience to actually back that up. We see that we're wired for this connectivity and what we call in therapy a, a deep rich listening environment actually helps the brain of the of the speaker it helps us open up neural pathways that connectivity that happens so we finally kind of have some science to back up what we thought's been valuable all these years which is a relief to all of us in my field uh, but that power of storytelling i'm just amazed every day at the strength that it it uh, has in our lives and the absolute important place for whatever the, the source and the content, but certainly particularly in, in the area of our grief and our loss. We'd like to back up for a moment. You had mentioned earlier about the five stages of grief by, for those of you who are listening, Elizabeth Kubler and David Kessler were the ones who created the five stages of grief. And for those of you who are listening and are curious, the five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And they were tools to help frame and identify what people may have been feeling. And we'd like to just talk a little bit about that because even prior to her work, we remember in your book, you talked about Sigmund Freud and who was the father, father of modern psychology who attempted to make the distinction between mourning and depression. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about Sigmund's work and how that influenced Elizabeth Kubler-Ross many decades later. Yeah, it was interesting that this is a famous paper called Mourning and Melancholia. Uh, that was the word for depression back in those days. And um, uh, what F Freud did make a distinction between the two. Um, but he, he introduced some language that I think followed psychology um, through the decades, which is the idea of if you, if you do the work of grief, then you will come to some form of completion. And so the work and completed, I think, became um, two significant words that you see move up through other writers. The next big writer was Eric Lindemann. Uh, we're now up to the early 40s, I guess. And this was a famous paper on the Coconut Grove fire in, I guess, Boston, in which I think 500 people died. It was the worst natural disaster in the country up to that point. So Eric Lindemann decided to interview those who were grieving. And he was using, you can see that same language about, you know, you need to do your work to come to some form of completion. And he actually put a time frame on it. He said probably four to six sessions with a psychiatrist ought to do it over the period of about six weeks. Well, that was a pretty bold statement, but it stuck. And it, I, think, I think that had some influence in, the, in all of, this, all of the uh, sort of writers that were to come. And, uh, um, you know, again, with Kubler-Ross's work, you know, her original work she did on her own, and then David Kessler, and she partnered up for the book on grief. And they do disclaim, you know, that this was not meant to be a rigid lockstep um, way and I don't necessarily blame them for how it kind of got worked into the culture. I think a lot of it was folks like me who were on the front lines trying to help uh, those who were grieving and it was such a tidy neat model it sort of helped order all the chaos and disorientation that was going on and um, I think that you know if you really look at all of that work it does have its roots back to Freud and we mentioned in the book that Freud actually, in a private communication after his daughter died, uh, spoke words that were very different than his paper. He really talked about the long effect of loss and mourning and how the desire to stay connected. Um, because all of these models sort of hint that you get disconnected and that there's not an enduring uh, attachment 
to those who have died. And that, I think, is what's, uh, you know, been a disservice for so many folks and confused so many folks about grief because they're on a timeline and it's goal-driven. And so after a certain appointed time, if they're still having an emotional response to their loss, then something must be wrong. And I don't think any one of the writers had an intent for that, but I think that was the outcome. And I think it's still with us today. We'd like to take just a moment to thank our premier sponsor for the Someone to Tell It To podcast, the Wonders Found Thrift Shop in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We are so grateful for their support, for their advocacy, for these messages that we share with you today and every day. So thank you. We also want to encourage you, if you are interested in helping to support these podcasts, you can do that yourself, too, by going to patreon.com and signing up and saying what you would like to do on a regular basis to help someone to tell it to continue these podcasts, to help them grow, and to reach more and more people around the world. We would imagine that it was probably such a transformational moment in your career, a pivotal moment in your career when you kind of came to some of these revelations for yourself and for those you were serving. And looking back on your career before you came to this understanding about the stages of grief, what kind of messages did you communicate to folks and what would you say to them today if they were with you? You mean from the folks that I saw back before then? Yes. Yeah. I think I would say I'm sorry. You know, I, I was I was in some ways doing the best I could with what I had, and I probably wasn't completely as authentic with myself about what was going on as I needed to be because I was under this same pressure. And what I would say to them today is, you know, it, it's not that none of those stages occur. It's, it's not the kind of anti-model that says none of those things happen. There's never denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance, depression. But they don't have to happen. And to the degree that I you know, feel like in some ways I was contributing to this idea of we've got to get to a finish line, uh, you know, I, I regret that. Uh, I would wish for them to know that there's not a finish line. I mean, I felt myself you know, all these decades later, even as we're talking uh, this evening, you know, to feel a little bit of welling up of tears as I'm, as I'm telling my story. It is so have I insufficiently grieved? Absolutely not. Am I still connected uh, to my little boy? Absolutely so. And, you know, the death of a child, as many who have experienced that, is, is so much the death of what was supposed to be. And so I see, you know, his cohort group, our friends that had kids at the same age, uh, you know, who he would be 40 this year, who are, you know, well into their lives and some with their own children. And I can't help but look at them and remember what was supposed to be that, that wasn't. So I, it, it takes away the shame. It takes away the self-doubt. Uh, again, if we stay focused on the fact that what we feel is because we loved, then there's a whole different energy about that. You have a chapter early in your book, um, Getting Grief Right, entitled The Cage of the Stages. And... Do you, can you elaborate more on that? Why that title? And um, what those stages, well, how those stages are a cage or might be a cage for so many people. As I recall, that cage of stages was actually a quote by Megan Devine, who's a great writer and colleague and was gracious enough to write a little bit for, for our book. And she was, her view was this, it was not meant to be a cage that that's really not what happened. This was what may happen, but it doesn't mean that that's what had to happen. And um, I'm looking at what she wrote. She says, Kubler-Ross identified five common experiences, not five required experiences. And the stages were uh, meant not to tell you what to feel, what you should feel, when exactly you should feel it. It was meant, uh, not meant to dictate whether or not you're doing your grief correctly or not. Um, in the last sentence was, they were meant to give comfort. Dr. Ross's work was meant as a kindness, not a cage. And then our comment is, but a cage they have become. And again, it makes sense when you think about how disorienting grief is 
And if only this were true, how it would help us navigate in a more predictable fashion through our suffering and help us get to a place of not suffering. And so I think, again, it, it just got embedded in the culture. We talk about how, um, uh, and I, I would encourage your listeners uh, to Google Homer Simpson and the five stages of grief. <laughs> yes, we will do that. Yeah, we're intrigued Yes, now. Homer. Yeah. Well, <laughs> here's, here's how it goes. He eats some bad food and is given something like two hours to live. And he's in his doctor's office. And the doctor explains, you know, that you're going to go through these five stages. And, of course, he demonstrates each one as the doctor suggesting what it is. And at the conclusion, the doctor says, you've made remarkable progress. You know, because he, he, he went through all five, all five stages in about 20 seconds. But it's just stunning to me. You know, you, know, and it, it, you hear things that are embedded in the culture from psychology, like ego, superego, id, or, you know, various terms. But I'm not sure that any have embedded themselves quite like they do in the five, it's the five stages. You'll see it on uh, situation drama, dramas and talk show hosts. And, and again, uh, it, it's misconception to label uh, Kuba, Ross, and, and Kessler's work with the word closure. That was not their word. That was the Gestalt word, uh, but which was really the point of Gestalt, was to bring your, your incongruent thoughts and feelings into a place where they were able to kind of stop and close. But uh, you don't have to listen to many news reports where there will be someone saying, uh, hopefully they can find closure. But if you look at what that literally means, it means it's closed. You know, if you have a store closure, it means it's not open anymore. Now, I'm not going to say that there never isn't something that looks like that, but I think that's become such a pressure on folks. That's where we lost the story. That's where we lost community is because we got into this pattern of, of looking at stages, looking at this idea of closure, and, and then being self-critical if we had not achieved it, and not just not achieved it, but not achieved it in a certain amount of time. So how did this, that, uh, this understanding that you, you came to have um, you know, professionally, how did that help you personally with your own grief and loss? Well, that's a great question. I appreciate that. It, it freed me up, you know, because I had two things going. One, I'm not getting my grief right. And two, I'm a fraud because here I am working with these folks to get to this thing, acceptance, closure, um, and I wasn't there. So I felt real uh, dissonant about all of that. So it really provided for me what I saw it start to provide for the folks I worked with which was relief. I can just be with this. I don't have to be self-critical about it. I don't have to keep wondering if I'm getting it right or the fact that I'm getting it wrong. So it really sort of morphed and transitioned me to a place of much more openness. Um, you know, it was at a time where kind of folks had quit talking about our loss and we weren't telling that story anymore. And, and it, it, I felt like I could tell it all over again. And uh, certainly the work that we've done in the book was that, uh, to be able to tell the story, as I just did uh, to you all and your listeners all over again, is a great connection for me. It's, it's sometimes hard to tell it. It's a story I need to tell and I'll continue to tell. And, you know, we're now telling the next generation. We're telling our, our older grandchildren uh, about the uncle that they didn't know, about their dads, both of them are my subsequent children are male, both their, their dad's brother. And so it's part of that storytelling that's also a legacy, that this is part of our family history. So it really helped me embrace it rather than resistant. And, and that really is so much of the work I end up doing in the counseling I do is to work with people about their resistance to the suffering. And because suffering is not something that's really uh, very easily accepted, at least in this culture. Everything about us is about trying to um, avoid that, to deny that, and to not see any value in it. And so uh, folks come, sometimes the real issue is not their grief itself, it's the energy they're putting into not grieving, the energy they're putting into resisting the, f the fact that they have had a tremendous loss. And again, if I make that transition for them, that they are not, there's nothing pathological here. This is about an expression of love. You can, I can sometimes just see the visible relief on their face. Their shoulders loosen, their eyes will well with tears, uh, 
and they feel free uh, sometimes for the first time to be able to experience the very natural, normal, organic response to their loss. You've used this word several times in this interview already, and I know that we use it a lot in our work is just shame. Uh, and, and shame comes up in a, in a variety of um, issues, you know, in, in all of our lives and stories. And you reference grief shame. And we'd like you to talk a little bit about that because we could think of so many examples of people that we've worked with over the years. Uh, one woman in particular, I know stood out to me. She had lost her husband and we went and visited her in her home and the the answering machine came on. Somebody had called her on the telephone and we had just arrived and the answering machine came on and it was her husband's voice. And this was probably only maybe a week or so after he had passed and several of her family and friends had said to her, why do you still have that on here? You just need to get rid of it. And we just, we encouraged her. We often call ourselves permission givers, giving her permission to do what she, she needed to do. And that was, that was the only thing that she had of her husband left, uh, you know, his voice. And so she didn't want to get rid of it. So we gave her permission to just keep, keep the answering machine as long as she needed to. And so let's just talk a little bit about this grief shame concept. Well, this takes us to, you know, Tim and I had two missions in this book. One was to offer what we describe as relief to those who grieve. Uh, in terms of how they are, can connect with it. Uh, and two is to create a better community for those who grieve. So I think the answer to the shame question is somewhat systemic and loops into uh, our conversation how the community responds. Now, the exception to that would be I see some folks who, um, I, you know, it's rare, but I see some folks who have really lovely communities and they've got shame all on their own about it. And some of that's old history, and some of that is, again, um, sort of somewhat of a personality type because they're uncomfortable with public expressions of grief. Um, but, you know, so many times, and I'm sure this has been true for you all, as someone begins to cry, the first words are, I am sorry. I'm sorry I'm crying. Uh, it's just sort of built into us that we're, uh, you know, happens all the time as they're reaching for the Kleenex. I am sorry. I'm sorry. And to your th word permission, you know, the space you offer and the space I offer and the space I would wish for more friends to offer is one in which there's no need to apologize. We are right there with you. So the, there's a portion of work I do with many folks, and the question I'll often ask is pretty straightforward, and that is tell me how your community has responded. And uh, it's lovely, and I'm so pleased when I hear they've taken care of me, they've loved me, they've fed me, they've done uh, what I needed them to do. But I would have to say that's almost a rare story. What I hear so much is more of shaming comments, and here's the tricky piece, meant to be helpful. That the intent to be helpful ends up uh, actually creating for some folks something said that implies you're, you're not getting it right or uh, it's minimizing, um, it'll be over soon, or, you know, of course there's the frustrating I know how you feel uh, comment, uh, and then they'll sometimes make some, try to make some relevant link to something that happened in their life. So, I guess how I'm answering the question about shame is I think there's a portion that can just be individual with no systemic community response. But I would say a large portion of it is how folks are treated in their community, the kind of things that are said to them, the sort of uh, things that happen in the workplace. I've written a couple of articles about how to be a better uh, manager, how to be a better person in the workplace to those who are grieving. Now, in doing that, you know, we can, I think, maybe step into this a little bit more. The idea is I don't know. I, I should not come in any circumstance thinking I know what my friend needs. You know, our common thing on the way to the funeral or the way to the wake or the way to the house is to say, what am I going to say to this person? And I would uh, challenge anyone to work on not asking that question. This is the question I think we need to ask, and that is, how can I be present to my friend? 
How can I be there in a way that gives them the space in the room they need? And they may not, that may be to not cry. That may be to tell stories or tell jokes or to sit in silence. This idea of, of how we interact with those who bereaved, who are bereaved, uh, tends to be, we tend to think what we need to do is to do something that diminishes their suffering. Now, some of that may be our own discomfort with being in the, in the presence of suffering. And some of that may be, again, good intentions. They feel bad. I want to make them feel good. But I think there's a lot of direct ways this shaming thing can happen. And sometimes it's incredibly subtle with just an, an offhanded comment. Or, um, you know, we talk in the book about all the cliches that people say that are sometimes so minimizing. We, we talk about one that, that always gets a little bit of attention, and that is you, you think you're doing a good thing when you tell somebody how strong they look, how strong they're being. Is that really helpful, or are we just putting pressure on them? That assumes that their public presentation is exactly how they're feeling on the inside, and, uh, and we have no way of knowing that. We talk a little bit in the book about what it calls social splitting, where so many people, after a loss, have to get back into their lives and present differently than they feel. They have to um, present a way in which they don't look as if they're mourning. And I think in our culture, uh, you, you can be rewarded for that. Those who look like they're not mourning are actually sometimes rewarding. They are so strong. Those who look like they are mourning might be criticized and saying, well, gosh, how's our friend doing? He or she is just a mess. There's, a, there's numerous ways that I think people try to be helpful and they end up actually creating um, more pressure or indirectly they end up uh, contributing to the person's shame about how they're feeling. Yeah, the, the, we, you know, in the work that we do, we hear so many of those cliches. We, um, you know, because, you know, uh, our background and training is, is, is as pastors, we continue, even though we're doing this work now full time and not working in churches, we still continue to be asked by people to uh, officiate at memorial services or funerals. And we, um, you know, meet people in, I mean, we consider it sacred to, to meet people in, in some of the most painful and difficult and intense moments of their lives you know, particularly when they've, when they've lost someone they love so, so dearly and, and, and deeply. And, the, yeah, so we, we just get to hear the, a lot of that, too, and, and you know, try to try our very best not to say those things and, and not to minimize what someone is going through or, or how they're feeling or what they're thinking. And... Um, because we we know as as you're saying that just there is such discomfort with those feelings of uh, of grief and pain sadness that that we do as human beings just just try to minimize that try to try to fix that uh, so quickly and we 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 just we totally agree with with what you're saying and and uh, just struggle sometimes when we hear those those cliches that we know are not helpful. It is, it's, and I, it takes, I think, some courage to sit with those who suffer. Uh, and I think it's something we have to breathe into. Uh, while you and I and many others who may be listening uh, are trained listeners, this is not something that can't be done by all. If you can you kind of get the, the, the sense of, of um, the presence of being with somebody. And take the pressure off of I've got to say or do something that's going to change their state of mind. But just this kind of notion of sitting with them and, uh, and following the lead. Again, there may be that your friend doesn't want to cry at this point, doesn't want to talk, doesn't want to uh, um, share what's going on inside them. Presence is what matters, not that you are there on a mission to get something um, for them to say. And um, I, I think is your mission is, and certainly uh, to some degree my mission is, is I think a whole lot of things change when we can become that kind of community where we can really be present and uh, available. And, and not forget about folks a month after the loss. 
Uh, we talk in our book about, you know, make it a point to call once a month, send an email, uh, take somebody to dinner, and and do this listening. Be this bear witness. You know, um, you go out with your friend and you said, you know, I don't, I don't think I really knew your dad all that well. Can you tell me some stories about him? Uh, you know, one of the, we talked about the three most important words are I love you. I think the next three most important words are tell me more. I want to hear. I want to understand. And to, to that degree, I think we uh, have a, a great opportunity and it's so, uh, to, to um, be with folks in the way they need. So many folks I see sort of become converts to this because they've now been through it. And so many folks I'll see would say to me, I can't believe the things I used to say to people before I had a loss. I get it now. I am ashamed of what I have said to folks trying to pep them up or cheer them up or talk them out of it because that's just not effective. And now I'm on the other end of that. I have a whole different appreciation for it. That actually was something we were curious about is what kind of response you've been getting since your book was published and your article in the New York Times. Well, it, it, the, the kind of sequence of events was Tim and I had put our proposal together and um, we were uh, getting rejections by the day. It's, uh, you got to have, you know, it's, it takes a little ego strength to do this book thing, uh, and, unless you, until, as you well know, maybe. And so uh, what was happening in the, um, I guess it was the fall of 2014, uh, was I saw that, um, that, actually that's when we began to try and put the proposal out. And uh, there was a series running in the New York Times called Couch, C-O-U-C-H, which it was articles by therapists and by clients or patients who had been in therapy. And so I was reading through that, and I thought, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. So I, I wrote up an article, and Tim looked it over, and we fiddled with it a little bit. I sent it in on a Monday. I heard uh, in January of 15, I sent it in on a Monday. I heard on Tuesday from the editor that... Uh, they wanted to run it. It ran that next Sunday. And the response, part of the two things were trying to happen there. One was I just wanted to see if how I was thinking about this and how we were writing about this really connected with folks. And the feedback we got was it turned out to be one of the most shared articles in the history of the New York Times. And what that meant was, I think, was people were seeing it and sending it to their friends sending it to their loved ones in, in all sorts of social media. So we just had this uh, tsunami of support and letters uh, to the editor and such support from the New York Times folks for it. And so, all right, th our idea is okay. Uh, so that was Sunday. We had, a, we had an agent on Monday. So it, it also had the other effect of getting us an agent so we could get the book published, which is also important. So... Uh, to answer your question, I, I still, to this day, the book's been out a couple of years, I still to this day get a similar kind of letter from folks, which is, this has just provided me so much comfort, so much relief. I thought something was wrong with me. I've been thinking something's wrong with me uh, sometimes for decades. And the words that you all wrote have helped me see that there's nothing wrong with me. Uh, and so it's been a great response. Um, folks from all walks of life and different parts of the world have contacted and, and with their gratitude for it, and we're certainly grateful that it, that it connected as it did. So our thinking was that there's some hunger here for, for this message, and I am one of many. There's several folks who are writing these days trying to sort of move us into a new way of thinking about grief, and they do great work, wonderful work. And I'm glad to be a part of that because I think we're trying to get a, uh, we're trying to shift out of a culture that's been pretty well stuck in this way for decades. What a powerful episode with Dr. Patrick O'Malley today, Tom. Mm -hmm. The poignant story about the loss of his young son, Ryan, and, and how that's informed Patrick in his work as a therapist, I think has really helped Patrick to be deeply attuned to the complex feelings of so many others who are living with grief. What do you think? Yeah, we hadn't really uh, intended to do an interview in two parts. We'd never done one in two parts before, but, but with Patrick's very professional and 
profoundly personal experience with loss and grief, we knew that this was an episode that called for more. Yes, and we just want to thank all of you for listening to part one today. We hope that you learned many nuances about the complexities of grief and that they can help you to understand grief better, both whether it's in your own experiences and, and with those who others who experience loss in their lives. And lastly, we just hope that you'll tune into part two of Patrick's interview. We promise you it will continue to inform you, inspire you, and help you and help us to lean into grief when it touches our lives. So until we listen again, 